This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me for The Bigger Picture, where I'm joined by Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Um, Mike, where are we going to stop? today um probably no 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 prices for guessing really given the week we've had well i think it would be it would be remiss of us not to talk about the the biggest rail strikes in 30 years that have hit this country coordinated industrial action across uh, some major pieces of transport infrastructure there could be there's more to come and there could be there could be industrial action in the wide sector the phrase summer of discontent has been spreading but let's just look at the actual day itself. So we're talking about the dating question was Tuesday, the 22nd of June. Coordinate strikes by members of the RMT union on both uh, the National Rail Network and the London Underground Network as well, which crucially meant that lots of people who would write about it in the media or in politics would talk about it as well. Only a fifth of trains running. The issue at the centre is really what about pay and job security? The union says, in reply, this 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 has been um, a matter that's been largely handled by the, the train companies rather than the government. So we're not seeing a sort of return to that sort of nineteen seventies style of industrial relations where the Secretary of State for Employment would sit down with Jack Jones if it was Michael yeah. Foot in that day and discuss discuss the weighty issues, as it were. Undoubtedly, it caused a great deal of disruption. I have to say, on a on a on a, on a personal note, I was very grateful for the the hardworking people who managed to provide a service on the Overground and the Elizabeth Line down here in London. And obviously, in the age of remote working, it's uh, it's it's less of an inconvenience for for some people, but still, for many people. It will have meant a considerable yes, the same sort of people who day. sort of suffered during the pandemic, who couldn't work at home, are the sort of people who are going to get hardest hit. And we're recording on a Thursday when there's another rail strike and one due for Saturday, and we're told that they will continue beyond that. Well, yes, and I think we had, as you alluded to, there there will be there's more strikes to come. There's also talk about ballots taking place uh, among postal workers, teachers as well in the autumn. The unions really are seeking to create a summer of discontent on the government as inflation rises and the cost of living pressures increase. I think what's more remarkable in this is the politics of the handling of this as well. The government chose to be completely absent from engaging with this. It's hardly surprising, really, given that this is a Conservative government and it's a government that is a post-Thatcher government as well. So it can it can work together and try and coordinate mm. the different uh, components in a sense whilst being at an arm's length 
even more interestingly, though, there's uh, has been the response of the Labour Party that Keir Starmer has maintained a sort of studious silence on the subject. Labour uh, frontbenchers were told that if they attended strike picket lines, they would be fined. So there's really been a sort of both the major parties have wanted to try and steer clear of this. I think for the government, it's there's Labour's been arguing that the Transport Secretary Grant Shapps has arguably abdicated his responsibilities to engage in the issue. And I'd argue actually it's incumbent on a cabinet minister in situations like this where there is a deadlock to intervene and try and resolve the situation in the best way possible. However, Mr Shapps's refusal to do so, I think, has been undertaken for largely political reasons. It, it may be that they it may be that there's a solution that can be reached between them i mean for example we've seen that union leaders on mersey rail have resolved uh their dispute uh with a 7.1 percent pay increase there that's with the uh the tssa union transport salaried staff workers union as well uh, mick lynch of the rmt has been very much front and center in this and actually he's enjoyed i think some strike quite strong broadcast media performances as well he seized upon this as an example that the department for transport uh, are basically he says actually the mersey radio has actually shown that ministers can block progress mm-hmm. in terms of an internal dispute but but it is it is funny because you look at say network rails perspective on this where the they insist that the best they could afford across the national level would be three percent and they want to improve on that but that's only if they can find efficiencies and uh, even then eddie dempty who's the deputy um, general secretary of rmt saying that you know they can achieve 8.5 percent they've got an inflation busting deal on the dlr crossrail transport for wales so there may be some headway in there but very much the unions are pointing the finger at central government here saying that they're the ones who are politicizing the issue and blocking progress rail network as a, as a whole received a massive amount of support during the pandemic when of course there was you know, very much very many fewer people traveling i mean 16 billion pounds has been quoted 600 pounds for every household and clearly as you point out many people now don't actually need to travel by train if they don't want to i mean are we talking <coughs> a little bit like the the miners that they're they're up, they're going on strike at a time when the industry actually is in trouble and many people may not want to travel by training again. Well, you alluded to there to the levels of COVID recovery bailouts that have been handed to the industry. It's absolutely true that the level has run now to tens of billions of pounds and it's it's tens of thousands of pounds per railway worker now in terms of subsidy. And of course, this funding is was arguably needed mm. to keep things going. If you look at the case of just down here in London, for example, the government has used that bailout as an opportunity to turn the screws, I would say, on transport for London and the Mayor Sadiq Khan, particularly over things, issues like raising the congestion charge fee, getting the mayor to make politically unpopular decisions. We must remember that the government took a decision a few years ago to remove TfL subsidy from central government, insisting they had to be entirely dependent on fares income as well. Sadiq Khan's management of TFL will undoubtedly be a, a big issue for people when the next mayor, uh, when the next mayoral election rolls around. Nationally, though, 
this is very damaging, I think, to the transport network. On the, on the one hand, I think that it's, it's very easy to be irritated by the unions and, and, and accuse them of playing politics on this. I think the finger we should be pointing at is at, is at both Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson for refusing to engage in this as well. Yes. I think actually in this situation, the government should be looking to find constructive solutions on this, or at least be looking to act as a, a neutral party. Certainly, the government's tried to make headway on this by passing a law the day before we're speaking to see if agency workers can be brought in to fill the gaps. And the chair of the rail delivery group has said today that railway workers are not being given a guarantee that the reforms that are being proposed, because this is the other issue about job security, it's not just about pay, Mm. Um, can't lead to compulsory redundancies because the picture's uncertain. I think that's about as much as as, as long as they can be at this time. Is is it right that the voluntary redundancies are actually exceeding the number of people the the rail companies want to get rid of, which I've read somewhere, but I didn't see it sort of backed up by statistics, so I wasn't sure if it was right or not. It's hard to say at this point in time. Yeah. I, I would. I haven't seen those numbers. If I'm entirely honest, the, the, the main the main issue. I think. No, I, I agree. I mean, I saw it, I saw that quoted, but didn't know. The, didn't the, see main, the main the main issue in the short term is that the COVID recovery funding across national networks, whether it's buses, trains, is being withdrawn gradually mm. as, as things return to normal. But the overall level of travel, passenger numbers are still down by an average of a fifth mm. across most of the sector and there is no real sign that this pain as it were is going to be ending for the sector. now we all want to see strong sustainable transport networks i'd argue actually that it's it's an imperative part of keeping everything working keeping our country going during these times mm. but equally is this reduction in passenger numbers going to be permanent are we seeing for example numbers of workplaces shifting away getting on the tube this morning to come in on the strike even though the tube was running it was nearly empty and it just shows how easily people are able to switch to working from home particularly in the capital Mm. elsewhere in the country the pitch is more complicated i think that it, it highlights i mean outside london people may be more reliant on cars but there will still be many people for whom particularly in and around i would say cities like manchester cities like birmingham as well Leeds, Newcastle, who do rely on the trains to get to work, do rely on public transport, can't afford to run a car. The cost of petrol is already very, very high. This is another complicated question for the government to address. Mm. And then, of course, there's the looming context we're going to discuss in the background of record high inflation, but also the risk of the UK economy falling back into recession as well before the end of the year. Well, that's probably a good moment then for us to take a break and we can change topic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm Simon Rose in conversation with political commentator Mike uh, Indian. So you, you were talking about the... Um, uh, 
the rise of inflation, the cost of um, filling up your car with with fuel. I mean, we are we are not just seeing inflation, but we're seeing a pretty stagnant economy. What's called um, stagflation looks to be increasingly on uh, the horizon. I mean, we're facing a recession and inflation at the same time, which is just yes. absolutely appalling. Has not, and it would be the third recession. Uh, that would have happened in the last decade and a half since the financial crisis, since the the COVID recession. Inflation, according to the Office of National Statistics, as measured by the CPI index, has risen now to a level that hasn't been seen since early 1982. It's the highest rate in the G7 group of nations. And and RPI, we should say, is virtually 12%. That's what most people tend to think of as inflation. It's what, what most people feel... And, uh, you know, we have this ridiculous thing when um, uh, the government sees use RPI whenever it favours them and CPI whenever it favours the consumer. consumer. And and these increases are being driven by increases in the cost of food, furniture, transport. The cost of increases in food prices particularly are going to worry a lot of people. The the last time I think the government had to deal with inflation levels, even approaching this high, it was around about Black Wednesday and this is the first time this has really happened since the control of interest rates has been handed back to the Bank of England. Producer price inflation is now higher than any other time since 1977. So this really is a challenge that no policymaker, whether they're monetary, fiscal, or politician official, has ever had to deal with. Yes, well, it's only recently the Bank of England, of course, were claiming this was all going to be transitory, even though most leading monetarists around the world were, were, were warning, I mean, ages ago. It's as if somehow they'd forgotten every economic textbook they read when they were students. And, and those who are hawkish on the uh, monetary policy side, three members of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee voted for a, a half a percent increase rate, because we've got to look at banks like the Federal Reserve that mm. have risen above the incremental but even then the interest rate the baseline rate of the bank of england is now 1.25 percent. that doesn't sound like a lot but that's 12 times what it was a year ago and it's also now crucially the highest it's been since 2009 so there's a whole generation yes. of people who have never really known how to deal with yes. this and the government is still continuing to rely on you know to, to push a reliance on credit for people as well there has been targeted support to the chances support package to energy for energy prices to the most vulnerable households. But we look at things like what the Resolution Foundation are saying, and they call this latest spike in inflation increasingly worrying because consumers are already dealing with a huge spike in petrol prices as well. Now, this inflationary spike at the moment is projected to last at least until 2023. The prime minister, the country is heading towards a difficult situation. There's a constant speculation about what the government will do about this as well. The Prime Minister has insisted that that pay restraint is necessary now as well. And now he's starting to sound a lot like the late James Callaghan. (laughs) Bear in mind that last time we were in this situation, you had a, uh, in in the late 70s, you had a Labour Prime Minister telling a conference that you couldn't spend your way out of a recession. That was the sort of, in, in political sense, that heralded the start of a move towards uh, the monetarist economics that have dominated our country since then. The government's solutions are constantly reheated thatch right ones. For example, the selling off of council houses, 
as well. But also, we mustn't forget that from a political side, the Chancellor faces, as, as inflation continues to rise, as interest rates continue to go up, the cost of servicing that UK's national debt, that debt time bomb we talked about, where roughly a quarter of it at least is now held on, mm. uh, on, on gilts that are far shorter issue than the standard Treasury ones. They're about one year because they're held by the Bank of England under quantitative easing. As the cost of that debt goes up, you've got to try and find a way of refinancing it. It stands at least at £80 billion at the moment, which is the, the, a significant chunk of money for any yes. country to spend. I mean, we've had this so one. many people on Share Radio since the financial crisis talking about the, the likely effects of quantitative easing being pumped into the economy uh, and keeping interest rates artificially low. And had those policies been reversed or ameliorated when there was a chance to do so, then the Bank of England and the government would have so much more room for manoeuvre. But the trouble is, it's like that dreadful old joke. You wouldn't want to start from here. Whatever whatever your view on the Monetary Policy Committee, you know, there's almost nothing they do. The more they put interest rates up, the slower the economy will, will get, the more chance we have of dipping into recession. Keep it low, and all it does is compound the problem. It feels like too little too late on that yeah, side. And unfortunately, we need to know, we have to acknowledge as well that the monetary policy levers on this are only going to be able to really move in line with inflation. So look, the Bank of England can try and raise interest rates, but to get inflation down to the target rate of 2% from where it is at the moment is going to take a considerable amount of yes. work. I mean, you, you talk about the numbers there, and of course, producer prices are you know, what will feed through into inflation, and they show no sign of, of stabilising at the moment. It's absolutely shocking. When it, I mean, who knows? I've seen petrol already above £2 a, a litre. Admittedly, it was going past a motorway service station, and they're always the more expensive. But I mean, you know, it's not that long ago. We're talking about the shock of it going through £1 a litre. Absolutely. And we're still waiting to see really what impact it's going to have in political terms, because although at the moment, if we look at the poll lead, for example, that of the Tories and Labour, Labour's poll lead is, a, is best mm. a couple of points. It's soft. The Prime Minister, as, as we're recording today, there's, there's voting going on in the Tiverton and Honiton and Wakefield by-elections. I imagine there'll be plenty of people in both of those constituencies who'll be worried about the cost of living. Mm. If, the economic, if the economic situation is going to get worse and the finances political position is already precarious, we have to wonder that could this be the nail that finally tips him, pardon the coffin, or the thing that finally tips him out of office. What's depressing is that nobody seems to be offering any form of solution at all. Everybody's just, whether they're going around with their head in their sand or they just don't, don't have any idea i don't know but it, i find that just terribly depressing you were talking before about you know keir starmer virtually going absent without leave the government not wanting to engage i mean i just find this incredibly depressing there seems to be nobody offering any form of solution and i find that almost worse than than at least if somebody is doing something but doing it wrongly it's just so i find it so depressing I can understand Keir Starmer's logic for wanting to steer clear of this. If you remember the last time Labour was in a similar situation to this in the 1984 miners' strike, mm. Neil Kinnock, when Labour was languishing in the albeit the second party, but around a similar number of MPs and having to do a, a big job of trying to rebuild its credibility in the face of a government that had just won a big election victory, Neil Kinnock had a similar dilemma in the sense that he, you know, he was from mining stock himself, but equally Labour's. Um, the miners were politically damaging to the Labour mm. Party at that time. That said, we are in a, we are in a slightly different situation now. But I suspect that Kistama 
is trying to walk two lines between it. I'm not suggesting he row in behind the unions or condemn them. What I think he needs to do is he needs to be out there with Louise Haig, who's one of his most capable shadow cabinet ministers, the shadow transport secretary, definitely somebody to watch in any future Labour front bench and hopefully a future Labour government as well. We could see them actually seeking to, to broker a solution as part of the alternative government to power and, and saying how they tackle this as well. If Starmer wants to appear competent, he could be out on the foot exploiting the government's silence in this space and actually suggesting what Labour would do differently. And I think that sort of proactive approach, actually, particularly with this sort of threat, this talk of a snap election hanging over us, which Andrew Marr in his New Statesman article the other day said we shouldn't count against because of the precarious position of the economy and the Prime Minister. It's something that Labour could actually be more productive on. And that's maybe one of the routes that they get back into power. Right. Thank you. Let us change topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian in the bigger picture. Um, so, Mike, where are we going now? Now we're going to look at something that's a little more, <laughs> a little more scandalous. But and surprise, surprise, we are going to be turning to um, look at the government's Rwanda policy. So, for those people who aren't aware, there is a there is a considerable level of interest around what happens to migrant communities. The prime minister has today; uh, he's actually visiting. Rwanda, as as we vote in the by-elections, he's actually addressing a uh, a Commonwealth uh, summit in Kigili. But of course, most people will be familiar with Rwanda in the sense that the government has has articulated a policy whereby it will take young single men who are deemed to have been illegal migrants and effectively deport them to Rwanda. They paid the Rwandan government $120 million for this arrangement. The first flight was due to leave uh, last week, the week before we record this. And it was grounded at the last minute by the European Court on Human Rights. Now, leaving aside the policy um, itself, plenty of people have questions about it. It feels like an example of this government's campaigning modus operandi. This is something that's constantly levelled against Boris Johnson. He thinks about eye-catching headlines, but when it comes to policy there's actually a lot that's lacking and the Rwanda policy seems to be a good example of that that there may have even if the flight had taken off there may have been single digits of people on there it just looks good to have an airplane taking off taking a group of you know foreigners in, in the eyes of the sorry base that Boris Johnson is trying to appeal to to another country but even then there's nothing to stop people for anyone who knows even a little bit about how these horrible practices of human trafficking and migrant routes work. They work their way back up to North Africa, to Libya or another country on the south coast of the Mediterranean. They pay some money to some shady individuals who put them all in the dinghy. They send them out across the Mediterranean or they can travel overland. There are, well, we would be far better targeting our action in coordination with our European partners against trying to shut down those routes, policing those routes better, ensuring that there are clear, legal and easily accessible route for people to come to this country. But the government of, had tried that with, with the French. and It didn't seem as if the French were particularly sorry to see these migrants disappearing in boats. No, and there, there are lots. I mean, 
again, this 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 isn't just a UK problem as well. Uh, the the macro issue here is one that falls a lot on European countries. I think there the sense of a fortress Europe is springing up, and and there are lots of these camps that happen to come up in Paris. But even then, we have to on the coast of Calais, for example, in Paris in the Elysee Palace. It's something that the French, obviously being a, a land. You know, with the country with the land land borders of continental Europe have to deal with, but equally the political capital that is made about the migrant boats that come over. Yes, you know you'll see people on talk TV on GB News on the beach saying someone's just landed here on a boat and disappeared off into the sand We still take a comparatively lower level of. Uh, refugees compared to our European partners. And yes. I'd argue that... And, and, and looking to the future, of course, the big worry is that many of the countries from which migrants might want to come are going to face appalling um, food problems. Yes. Because and, of the war in Ukraine. And absolutely. And bread basket. We, we, you know, wheat and so many other things are going to be in short supply and incredibly expensive. It fundamentally... Is is there a is there any statistical any sort of fact, verified fact reason why we shouldn't be taking more people into this country? Absolutely not. It's entirely political. We are still a rich country. We are still a country where there is opportunities. We're still a country that has a language that's spoken around the world and has a distinct identity. I think actually, any anybody who claims to be a patriot in Britain would look to embrace people who come to this country through clear and legal routes and not look to pull up the drawbridge. I mean, we're sick, recording this six years today since the, the Brexit vote and the man who led the Leave campaign has is, is been in office for three of those years and, and you know, the points-based immigration system's in there now. But the, the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister are trying to make coming to this country much more difficult and that will only encourage the migrant boats to happen. Mm. We can keep turning them around, but unless we address this issue at the root cause, which the Rwanda policy does not, that will be the problem. What the government has done, though, it's very, it's very hard not to see this as a cynical setup to fail. The European Court on Human Rights, which is not an EU institution, by the way, we're a member of this through the Council of Europe, which is a different institution entirely, uh, ruled that the flight could not go ahead. Now, this feels exactly what the government were going for. They were trying to set up a confrontation with the European Court of Human Rights to try and push through one of the Tories' pet projects, which is removing the European Court of Human Rights role in UK law through repealing the 1998 Human Rights Act that was passed by the Blair government. Now, this goes back to levels of sovereignty, about control. There's been a British Bill of Rights published by the Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary Dominic Raab. However, I would argue that some degree of additional oversight is actually a good thing that we're seeing the government claims so just just to give them their the bill that was introduced to parliament the day before we record this it ensures that the courts cannot interpret laws that in ways that were never intended by parliament and will empower the people to express their view freely now that sounds incredibly you know who who could possibly against that against that the supreme court becomes the ultimate judicial maker but isn't it the responsibility of the courts to interpret law isn't it the responsibility of courts to actually because i i refuse to believe that there is as as, as brilliant as undoubtedly as our legislators are as, as wonderfully insightful as they are they will that they cannot envisage every situation yes that 
a, a country with a functioning democratic system requires interpretation of the law as a key component of that. And we saw this as a great example of the Supreme Court prorogation ruling a few years ago that you know people who were aligned with the government's agenda tried to underline as well. Introduction of things like a permission stage that require people who have a significant disadvantage to have the claim go ahead may be advantageous. But at the moment, the crucial one thing is the government does, it says that it will allow, it says it will address this these future laws that allow that make it harder for foreign you know, it will basically allow foreign criminals to be more easily deported. So there you go, there's the political point here. This government has walked a very, very, very fine line between trying to say respect British institutions, which include the Supreme Court, but also denigrating them as well when it doesn't suit them. And this is another example of them trying to remove something that I would say they see as a political inconvenience rather than trying to strengthen this country's sovereignty and oversight over its own laws. Thank you, Mike. Um, I guess that's all we have time for for this week from The Bigger Picture. Uh, I've been in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucher Tennessee blog. Mike will be back uh, talking to me again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.